Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. Hello, this is Scott Martis. Welcome to another episode of The Haunted Sea. Today's episode is a follow-up to a panel discussion that we had on another show called Perversal Universe, hosted by the late, great Kevin Malick. We had a two-hour discussion discussing the pros and cons of paranormal approaches to the investigation of cryptozoological entities. And at the end of that program, we discussed the fact that we didn't get to everything we wanted to discuss and would like to do a follow-up. The original plan was to do it on Kevin and Jennifer's show. And unfortunately, in December of last year, Kevin passed away. So this show is, is basically a tribute to him and on the follow-up to the previous show. And uh, joining me today for this are the surviving participants of the previous program, and that would include Jennifer Malik. Hello, Jennifer. Hello. And Steve Patrick Carrington of the Facebook group Anomalous Universe. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Scott. And Danny B. Stewart, Utah folklorist. Hello, Danny. Hey how's, it, hey, how's it going? So, as I said before, we wanted to dedicate this show to two people that have since passed. The late, great Kevin Malick, who was a very dear friend of all of us, and we miss him very much. And also another friend, Jeff Stance, who was killed in a boating accident on Lake Michigan about a month ago. So we remember our friends, and hopefully today we can do them proud by continuing this this interesting discussion that we had on the previous show. Basically, most people approach cryptozoology from the standpoint that we're looking for an unknown biological animal. And usually in most cases that makes sense because... Some of the creatures that cryptozoology is looking for are known to have gone extinct in the recent past. Things like the thylus theme from Australia, uh, the moa in New Zealand. I mean, these are animals that have gone extinct in historic times. So finding a lost population of something like that would not be beyond the pale of acceptability. Then beyond that, you get into things like the ideas of surviving ground sloths from the Ice Age, surviving saber-toothed tigers, things that are both supposed to have been extinct for, say, thousands of years as opposed to decades or a 100 years, which, again, that's another level 
of acceptability, but it's not that outlandish. Then going beyond that, you have things like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster, which some people, and Mokili Mabimbi, which some people suggest are animals that have survived for tens of millions of years beyond their presumed extinctions. We're talking about things from the age of the dinosaurs from 60 million years ago. And uh, Gigantopithecus itself is supposed to have been extinct for around a million years. So, you know, again, that's we're talking about animals that we know once existed, even though it's millions of years ago. You know, all we're talking about is they have survived beyond their presumed extinction when they fell out of the fossil record, which is, you know, to to a paleontologist, the idea that these animals have survived for all these tens of billions of years is a stretch, but it's not anything beyond the possibility of what we know in the material universe because we already have a precedent to say we can. Now, what we're talking about today are approaches to answer these mysteries that go beyond biology. We're talking about things that question what we know about physics and the accepted material universe, which is taking it out of the realm of biology and putting it into the metaphysical. And a lot of people have problems with that. So, Jennifer, as somebody that has a lot of grounding in parapsychology and things of that nature. What is your take on this? I think that when you when it comes to and I know like you were saying a few minutes ago, when it comes to things like Bigfoot and Dogman, there are old school there is old school cryptozoology where people believe that they are not that they are nothing but physical. And then you have on the other side of it, you have the other half of people that tend to believe that there's more to them than the physical aspects of them. Um, give a good example, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off with this. And, and this comes up quite a bit when it comes to, like, Bigfoots and Dogmen, on the, uh, as far as the side who thinks that it's more paranormal, more metaphysical, is that they are interdimensional beings and that they are able to traverse to and from here through the use of portals. And I know a lot of people are just like, oh, you know, portals are bunk. How could you even believe in that? If we look into other areas, briefly for a second here, um, David Polites, who covers the missing 411 with all those missing people, he's come across various accounts of people that have gone missing and were found in areas where they shouldn't have been. Like there was an incident where a five-year-old boy was walking behind his family and they turn around and say something to him or see if he was going to catch up and he was gone. They found him through uh, air rescue several hours or days later and he was totally on a cliff, completely intact, and nobody had any idea how we got there. And if you look at shamans, there are shamans out there that will tell you that there are portals out there 
And there are different types of beings that come in and out of these portals. Well, you know, I'm willing to have an open mind on these sorts of explanations as long as there's some kind of theoretical substructure to support it, you know, from theoretical physics. Which, you know, there are several theories that have been bandied about lately that might work if they had a little bit more mathematical support for them, you know, and were less theoretical. So, um, but we'll get into all that. Um, Danny, what are your thoughts on all this? Well, I kind of take uh, a few different approaches. Uh, and it all just kind of boils down to possibilities for me. I'm a storyteller first, and I collect stories. But when people come and ask me, you know, do I think these things are, are living, breathing animals, or if they're actually some type of energy that can affect uh, affect us here on Earth, all I can say is look at the uh, what little bit of evidence we have to prove that these things are physical, as well as to prove that these things are metaphysical, and we have very little, and what we're left with is stories. But looking at our traditions that are passed down to us from our ancestors, you know, for millennia, and the stories that have been retold, like how many, how far back can we, you know, trace like the Kraken? You know, the uh, best I can guess is that uh, the Odyssey with with Skyla, with that uh, underwater beast, but now we found that that thing is more than likely the colossal squid. And then how many, uh, how far back does, does Sasquatch or Ape Man like legends go back, you know, to Beowulf or whatever, these types of things of unknown types of creatures. So we have to look at the history and the folklore and mm-hmm. just kind of best guess is what I, I think, I think the, best, the best way that we can approach this is to try and build a agreement to work together amongst the folklorists and the hard, rigid scientists. So when we come together, when this topic comes up, uh, the, neither one is badgering or mocking the other, but looking at the possibilities. Because, you know, our, our ancestors, the, the old school uh, scientists, they used to take, they didn't take these stories for granted. So I think that the idea that Bigfoot could be some type of nature spirit uh, of the forest, or that the creature of Loch Ness could be like the spirit of like a, an undying or a, a mer-type thing, is is an apt hypothesis. But either way, I don't think it's, it's something that I personally. My intent is not to prove, but my intent is to just keep the dialogue open uh, and keeping it friendly, so that we can at least keep trying to figure out what these things are, if they are anything at all, beyond simple stories. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's check in with little Stevie Wonder. What's your take on all this? <laughs> little Stevie Wonder. Yeah. <laughs> and take your sunglasses off. It's rude to wear sunglasses on TV. <laughs> I've been your head. But... <laughs> I've been called many things, but never little. But uh, as far as uh, what uh, Jen and Danny have stated, I- I'm right up there with them. Um, 
I myself believe there's, there's like the Bigfoot phenomena is more metaphysical uh, than uh, flesh and blood animals. Just from my research I've done, you know, over the years and all the accounts, you know, of all these strange goings-on around the creatures and the things they're supposed to be able to do, like mind speak, um, telepathy, uh, strange things seem like, you know, orbs around them. Um, and I'd like to get into more later about the creatures being seen quite often with UFO sightings uh, coinciding with them. So, uh, to me... You're coming in and out. Can't hear you very well. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, like I said, uh, to me, the Bigfoot phenomena is more coinciding with uh, UFO sightings uh, the more I research. So I'm more on the sense of them being more of a metaphysical entity. But uh, I'm like I, I've always been very open-minded, and uh, I, I I can agree somewhat with both sides. But there's like Danny says, uh, there's no real proof either way, you know, for the existence, the total existence, proof existence of this creature. So mm-hmm. we can't we can't rule out either side. I I don't believe. So, well, uh, you know, you look that's at where these, I stand. Yeah, you look at these intractable mysteries, and either way you turn it, there's always something. I mean, just looking at Bigfoot, okay, you've got the idea that there are, a, there is a population, a large group, probably a reproducing population, of eight foot tall. 1,000-pound gorilla-looking humanoids hiding in the woods on the perimeters of a highly civilized civilization with technology that we ought to be able to detect them. People go out looking for these creatures and find no remains of dead ones, but they find lots of footprints everywhere. So even if you turn around and say, see, there's, there's, there's no place for them to hide, uh, there's not enough food to support a big population of them, what is leaving all these footprints in the woods? Well, you know what, though, now, when, it comes to, when it comes to, I would like, may I add something, please? Yeah. Um, sure. When it comes to survival with the Bigfoots in the woods, if they, they, they work in clans, they have families, they don't just go after wildlife. They eat vegetables that grow in the wild. They'll eat fruits and berries that you can find out in the woods and the forests as well. And several years yep. ago, uh, my late husband and I and our team uh, did a Bigfoot expedition on uh, the land of a fellow investigator who's a shaman, John Young. And we set up cameras. We used every piece of technology that was current and not current to try and catch anything. And at one point, the DNR had planted turnip patches up the trail from where we, where we had been camping. 
So Don took Kevin to investigate the turnip patch, and while we were there, we started hearing two knocks from the east and three knocks from the west. These knocks went on for five minutes. Don explained to us later, what we all kind of figured it out anyway, was that that was them communicating each other. They were telling that they were telling each other how many of them were there and how many had actually gotten up and walked away. And after about five minutes, when they came back from the turnip patch, they heard the knocking, and a minute later, the knocking completely stopped. Well, I know they're, they're alleged to communicate that way, and they're also alleged to throw rocks, too. Yeah, I, they throw rocks. And one thing I want to touch on metaphysically with that is they're some kind of an animal species. Like most animals, they can sense the good and the bad in a person. And so what I learned over the years of studying them, that when you have people coming onto the land and maybe getting rocks thrown at them um, and such, it makes you wonder, because these things go by your energy. When you pull up to where they are, they're going to know that you're there, and they're going to know how many of you are there and what your intentions are. And if you treat them respectfully and you treat the forest the home that they live in, respectfully, you'll have peace and quiet. You may get some interaction, but I think it goes based on energy. Because if you see, like, these TV shows of people going out into the woods, they'll purposely go looking for a Bigfoot, but they'll do stupid stuff to provoke one. And that's when all this stuff starts happening to them. Yeah, well, part of the problem with these television expeditions is they not only go back looking for Bigfoot, they're dragging a television crew behind them. Right. As they're doing it. Right. You can't go in there with like three to four guys and then have an extra uh, amount of crew of like 26 to 38 people because you're not going to find anything. No. Um, But like I was saying, you know, even if you totally dismiss Bigfoot, that still doesn't answer what's leaving all these footprints in the woods. So you're right back to the mystery. You know, and then if you if you say, oh, it's just the Bigfoot researchers faking the footprints, I mean, that somebody would have been busted, you know. I mean, a few people have been busted and have fessed up, but to account for all those footprints... And some of the places they've been found, you know, that's it's just and and also you know the idea that they're all all of these humanoid-looking footprints with with well-defined toes and all this are all where bears have stepped in their hind feet is a little too much to buy either. So yeah, that's kind of ludicrous. And uh, you know, one criticism that is thrown at cryptozoology by the mainstream biologists. And it may be valid up to a point is that the case for too many cryptids is built primarily on anecdotal eyewitness evidence, which is not useless as evidence, but it's very weak evidence. You can't go back and verify it, you know. You're left with just this person said this and no other evidence to corroborate it unless there happens to be a picture or a video or a hair sample or a footprint 
from that particular sighting, you know, to to back it up. So, you know, and the reason the biologists take this tack is that they're used to working with biological specimens. And if you have no biological evidence to present them with, they're kind of like, well, I don't know what to do with this, you know? Yeah, uh, and it, and it's rough. And then, you know, so, yeah. um, you have to look at the at the rate that people hoax stuff. Because there's plenty of, there's been plenty of incidences where people have faked footprints to the point where they've actually lied and said that they had, you know, Bigfoot remains in the freezers. Yeah. Then you have, Dyer, then you have yeah. right, right, and then you have the half of the handful of other ones that go out there and dress up in a suit, basically, and mess with people and try to scare them because it has happened. And my yeah. problem with that is there are serious people out there that are looking for evidence. There are people that want to go about it humanely, and then there are people that want to go about it inhumanely as far as trying to prove an existence by catching one and killing one. So if you're walking around in a monkey suit in the middle of the woods and you come <laughs> across either one of these two people, you might get shot. People well, yeah. don't, they don't realize that. There was one guy that was trying to uh, fake something in a Bigfoot suit, got hit and killed by a car recently, yep. sometime over the last couple yep. of years. So, you know... Um, the hair samples, you know, have come back with disappointing results. Uh, there are a couple that Sykes examined that came back human, but the thing with that is we know that chimpanzee and human DNA is 99% the same. So it's possible that, that a few of these supposed Bigfoot hairs that have come back identified as human may actually be Bigfoot and it's so close to being human that they can't tell the difference at this point. I don't know. It's a possibility. You know, yeah, uh, even even some of the critics of Melba Ketchum's study find some validity in some of the work that she's did, even though it's been heavily criticized, so I wouldn't completely throw that study in the garbage either, you know? And as far as what I do, the closest thing we got so far is the Loch Ness environmental DNA study, which has this set of of problems, too, because there are animals that they know that exist or get into a Loch Ness occasionally that are unaccounted for in the environmental DNA survey, such as seals and otters. Yep. And the closest thing they could point to to try to identify Nessie was an overwhelming amount of eel DNA with the implication that the Loch Ness Monster could be some kind of giant eel we don't know about. So that's better than nothing. You know, the disappointment was, was not finding any reptilian DNA. So maybe well, they just didn't sample enough or, 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 you know, maybe, maybe Nessie, if there's a reptilian Nessie, 
maybe it's not in the lake all the time. Maybe it comes and goes from the sea. We just don't know, you know. So right, right. That's see. There could be like caves under the water. I mean, there's so many possibilities. It's like Kevin say when they do yeah. these DNA when they do these DNA researches, and he felt this way, and I kind of I feel this way about it too, especially when they release results on TV. I never feel that you're get that we're getting all the answers that we want. Like there is something that they're not telling us. Well, mm. touching on that point, there is a formal paper coming out about the Loch Ness environmental DNA, but it's in the referee process. It should be coming out probably next year, I would imagine. So, well, that'll hopefully be nice. that will have more that information that we need in in that right. paper. You know. Mm. So. You know, during the course of researching this, I came up on all kinds of crazy stuff. Not that I want to dwell on it, but there's one guy out on the West Coast. He's, he's a, he makes his living as a lawyer, a guy named Andrew Di Basaggio. And on the side, he claims that he was involved in a time travel project sponsored by DARPA for the government Hmm. and has made all these crazy claims about he's been to Mars through teleportation and discovered uh, Bigfoot-like humanoids and Martian plesiosaurs and all kinds of crazy stuff. (laughs) And this guy goes around giving lectures and, and getting paid to give these lectures on this stuff. And, yeah, I mean, this is this is real. You know, I'm not making this up. And then I think I mentioned on the last program about Ed Dames, who's a retired Army major that claims to have worked for the CIA on a remote viewing project. And yep. at some point, <clears throat> he was asked to look at Loch Ness, and his claim was that he could see the Loch Ness Monster, and it kept disappearing and reappearing as if he was watching it. And he came to the conclusion that it was the ghost of a plesiosaur, was his opinion. Hmm. And I was actually able to find a declassified CIA report that confirms his claims. You know, that just confirms that he believes this. That doesn't prove that any of this is true. But this this is the kind of crazy stuff that's out there that most people don't know about. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't personally know of that one myself. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of crazy yeah. stuff out there. Um, yeah, I, remember. I remember hearing that one a while back. I think the first time I heard that one was on back when Art Bell was still doing his show. Yeah, Ed Dames has been a guest on Coast to Coast several times back in the day when uh, Art Bell was still hosting it. Yeah. It's a very entertaining theory. But what do you got to to back it up, though, from a a scientific standpoint? That's, That's the point I'm getting at. Right. 
Well, the metaphysical yeah, exactly. isn't really acknowledged by the scientific side, you know, and we're dealing with a whole different type of uh, uh, well, of approach here. And that's the thing, that if these things are metaphysical, there's no way to prove or disprove them outright well, maybe, because there's really nothing there. Well, maybe there is. The idea is, know, but, is that out on the fringes of theoretical quantum mechanics and theoretical physics, there's all this talk about multiple universes yep. and wormholes and black holes and all kinds of weird things like that involving electromagnetic fields that could potentially open up some kind of doorway between dimensions yep. and possibly even time travel. So that's exactly what we're talking about. But the, the point is, is that all this stuff is all theoretical at this point. It exists as a mathematical formula. You know, you can't physically demonstrate yeah. it in a laboratory for the most part. Right. It's not written in stone. Yeah, so these are yeah. these are abstract theoretical possible answers to what we're talking right. about. Right. You know? right. And, and there's nothing wrong with keeping an open mind. Because you no, never know I, I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't keep an open mind, but but as far as you know, putting it on the same footing with what we know about physical biology, which is a whole different thing, that's a hard science. Oh, totally. I, I'm not saying yeah, it's not, you know, I acknowledge that completely. Yeah, it's like so, it's like it's like look at the remote viewing. When you talk about the mil the government stuff with the military, they've done various things that we know about. I mean, there are books out on projects that they've done. And well, yeah, of course. I think I don't, that you know, I don't discount that. Right, and I think we only get we're only being spoon fed so much of what they do. Opposed is what they keep to themselves. Yeah. Well, the other science. And it's it's very controversial, even to this day, but it is recognized as a science that has some bearing on what we're talking about, is parapsychology. Yep. You know, the, the, the best data that parapsychology has been able to come up with and quantify in any form is the existence of extrasensory perception. And even the best case that they can make for that is highly controversial with skeptical scientists that don't really consider parapsychology a real science, even though it's in the uh, American uh, Academy of Sciences as an accepted science group. Yeah, there are still people that that rejected as pseudoscience. So, you know. Exactly. Yeah. So, I read an article about the controversy over parapsychology, and the author in this particular article says that part of the problem is is that the data that parapsychology is studying has very little to do with mainstream psychology, in this author's opinion, and he said it would be better to call it paraphysics. 
So where I'm going with this is that this guy's idea that parapsychology data is actually some kind of physics problem that we don't understand would seem to connect the best data from parapsychology to this advanced theoretical physics that I'm talking about. In other words, what I'm trying to say is we may be looking at two sides of the same coin here. If you follow mm-hmm. me. Yeah. It's just being called different things in different branches of science in different disciplines. I don't know. Well, who came up with that term, parapsychology? Because, uh, like, para, doesn't that mean, like, just, like, one side of, one side of psychology? Well, and I always I, thought that para meant beyond something. That's more meta, I thought. Well, but anyway, but well, actually, when be. we talk about parapsychology, uh, and again, like, uh, bear in mind, like, proving anything like this is almost next to impossible, but then we're dealing with aspects of faith and aspects of belief and culture. When it comes to parapsychology, what I find interesting uh, is uh, different faiths around the world, you know, they're willing to accept the myths and legends that are within their own little bubble. But once that, when a new type of legend or myth that uh, is more metaphysical in nature comes to them from a different, uh, a different faith, a different religion, they, they definitely poo-poo it. And in a lot of ways, I think that can also be attached towards certain aspects of science. Because I think if we just took a more scientific approach towards what people are calling parapsychology or ghosts and looked at it logically and looked at all the different possible explanations from, you know, uh, you know, swamp gas to uh, ball lightning or, uh, you know, trips of the trips of light, et cetera, as well as the possibility of more uh, other world explanations uh, and bring all this to the, the, to the discussion. I yeah, think well, that, that's what I'm trying to do. Religion is just as can be just as poo-pooed and laughed at and mocked at as any psycholo- uh, parapsychological story because it is based upon the supernatural also. But it's funny yeah. that so yeah. many hard scientists that were also hard religious and faithful, they'll accept the magic that comes from that end, but completely disregard what other type of quote-unquote magic or metaphysical elements come from another end uh, of the spectrum. So there's a lot of hypocrisy in this uh, pot being stirred in at the same time, too. I think yeah. a lot of it uh, involves uh, safe. What, what is safe to admit might actually be there? What, what is safe to look at? You know, and it's, I just think that we, we're, we are fighting culture and faith and belief as well as science when we bring this up to discussion. I think yeah. that we just need... And, Honestly, like, I think it's a losing battle on our end until we can actually open, like, until one of us can actually pull the veil aside on a stage in front of, you know, a hundred scientists and have them come on, come up and, like, actually meet whatever type of metaphysical being we can bring out from beyond the veil. I don't mm-hmm. think we're going to be able to prove anything because photographs are, are faked too easily, uh, anecdotal yep. and eyewitness accounts are mocked and foolhardy. Yeah, well, the, um- the only thing that's going to work with the biologist is a unambiguous body. physical <laughs> specimen or a part of a body yep. or a body something. Yeah. 
that that absolutely is you know unambiguous that you can't say oh this is a mutilated shark or you know yeah right which you know is entirely reasonable and if these things exist as animals we ought to at some point be able to find something well we have just they're just not quite as i think that's the problem with cryptozoology is everyone expecting the most extravagant thing possible like people want it to be the dinosaur you know, people yeah. want it to be the big, huge monster, but really what, what folklore does is that, you know, when you tell a story, it gets bigger of every telling, and you give that well, thing, yeah. like, decades, centuries of retelling, and something that, that, that is a, an aardvark, you know, which was a cryptid, you know, has a mythical, a mythical uh, legendary sense attached to it until we find out that, you know, it's just a little, just a little nocturnal uh, burrowing animal. I think the, I think with the chupacabra falls in that category, which I think may may very well have been like the Mexican hairless dog. Uh, but there's other elements of the folklore that I may not be familiar with that could prove it to be something more alien, or yeah, even yeah. more dark. I just, it's just how we look at these things. But I mean, look at all of the animals that were grotesque mm-hmm. monsters. And, and, and brought fear to people like the giant panda, the mountain gorilla, the Komodo dragon. They were monsters, but now, you know, yep. they're in zoos. Absolutely. And, that's, yep. that's how they got started is through monster stories. And somebody went to investigate the monster stories and found the real animal behind the story. And so when you retell that story, like, you're going to tell a story on a cat bar about a, 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 a semi-docile, white and black, though very cute, a uh, brown bear that eats bamboo, you're going to tell us you're a big black and white beast that roams the forest and could tear your head off, you know? What yeah, do you, you want to see, listen to? The difference, sitting from today's perspective, the difference is these all happened a hundred years ago or close to a hundred years ago, and they yeah. happen in remote places that don't have a large civilization around them. Where on the other hand... We're talking about Bigfoot living in the middle of the heavily populated United States. I'm not trying to rule out Bigfoot here. I'm just trying to point out obvious differences. Right. right. Oh, I would like to point out something really quick. Um, in answer to a, a to a statement made earlier, uh, philosopher Max Desior uh, termed the phrase parapsychology in 1889. Mm-hmm. And it was adopted by J.B. Ryan in the 1930s as a replacement for the term physical research in order to indicate a significant shift toward experimental methodology and academic discipline. Yeah, well, Ryan and his wife were two of the major figures in the science of parapsychology. If you go look at the history of parapsychology, their names figure very largely. He was active until I think the early seventies, mid seventies, and yeah, his wife carried then. on into the eighties. Um, yeah. So, one interesting thing aspect of parapsychology is that parapsychology itself, the foundation of the science was meant to be a demarcation or breaking off from the spiritualist movement in an attempt 
to study it scientifically without the religious aspect being part of the study. In other words, they were trying to take it out of the religious spiritual realm and move it into science, study the same phenomenon, but with a more scientific approach, if that makes any sense. Yeah. 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 And to this day, there's still somewhat of a split. There are people that stayed with the spiritualist movement into what it evolved into, which would probably include the modern-day ghost hunters, you know. So there's there's kind of a, even today, there's kind of a a disconnect between amateur ghost hunters and formal parapsychologists. And yeah. I don't know why that is. Well, just take a look at the the real uh, the real shows they have on TV now, all the paranormal shows. I mean, they're they're pretty much a joke. If you, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, they're, they're more for entertainment than anything else. And, and I won't name the names, but there's well, a few that are that are pretty good. But yeah. the others are mm-hmm. are just laughable. Well, of course, well, it's for entertainment. That's all they are, uh, and yeah. because. It, it's just like there's so much information that we could add to the discussion on these shows, but that would mean that those shows would have to be three hour long per episode. And we yeah, all know yeah. people don't have that type of uh, attention span anymore. So yeah, they, well. they just give us the, the fluff, the fluff of the whole thing, which yeah, these shows are like hunting for, looking for. I mean, they make me throw up in my mouth because they make every single one of us who take this seriously look bad. And they, they put us all in the oh, same yeah. category, which I did not include myself with any of those people at all, because my approach is a hell of a lot different from what they do. Well, yeah, uh, that's yeah, the problem, yeah. is that yeah. parapsychology or, well, I mean, cryptozoology is not a formally recognized science. Therefore, there is no cryptozoological guild or formal hierarchy of leadership, anybody can call themselves a cryptozoologist that will and do whatever they want to, and there's no cryptozoology police to stop them. No, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's and awful. They're zoologists. There are, That's what they should be. Yeah. yeah. There are yeah, and, you know, people we, in like, the field that I think that go out in the woods, and they're not really looking for anything. They're just going out with their buddies to drink some beer and stumble around the woods and say they're squatching for what that's <laughs> worth. I mean, you know, if that's what they want to do, there's there's nothing I can do to stop them, but it's not no. performing right. a cryptozoology investigation. And I think right. a lot of the ghost hunters are doing the same thing. Okay, They've got their I, friends, I and they like to go hang out in the supposed haunted house and drink a few yeah. beers and laugh and cut up and, and hang around. You know, it's something okay. to do. Yeah, and well, you know yeah. what? And I would like to I would like to clarify something here because there is and I don't mean any disrespect, a difference between ghost hunters and paranormal investigators. My husband mm-hmm. my late husband, as you know, was the founder of the Northern Wisconsin Paranormal Society Limited. I am now and I have now taken his place. <coughs> We're callers of investigators because 
we deal with the clients before, during, and after because there is a lot that goes on. And a lot of the stuff oh, yeah. that you see on TV, I mean, we do investigations that could take days. You know, um, they never talk about the miles that you have to drive, the gas that you burn, the food that you have to have when you travel in mm. places, the equipment, the right. constant batteries. There is so well, much. I know exactly what you're talking it. about. Right. There is so much that goes into it that people take it for granted and they just look at these programs and see that and they'll automatically think that's how investigators investigate. We don't. As a matter of fact, we had a couple joined us us a couple of years ago. They were actually shocked at the way we did things because they were expecting it to be what it was like on TV when it was the complete opposite. Right. You know, we're talking about going to locations and setting up nerve centers and placing equipment and recorders and all this other stuff around. You may see five to ten, even 15 minutes of it on TV. And as far as doing a, a real reveal, that could take days to weeks and sometimes months to get everybody's yeah. stuff together to put it into yeah. one big reveal. And so I just wanted to say that without any disrespect. Yeah, yeah well, well, you know, well, what you're talking about is what real parapsychologists do. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I've got a book. I consider it the Parapsychology Bible. It's by the head of the Duke Psychic Labs. A guy named Richard S. Broughton wrote this book back in the early 90s called Parapsychology, the Controversial Science. And it goes into everything. You've got like a chapter on apparitions which are rare, but do happen. Mm -hmm. Which is a scientific term for a ghost. Oh, yeah. You know, so people do still study this, but but like you're talking about, Jennifer, the data doesn't just pop up overnight. You know, you've got to sit there and put some time into it to acquire any useful data, you know? And even then, it's highly controversial. Yeah, I mean, ghost hunters, your average ghost hunters that watch these TV shows go out, they buy the equipment, and they do the same things they see on TV, and they keep that stuff for themselves. The number of times that Kevin and I have heard of instances, and we've talked about this on our radio show, mm-hmm. to where you see these people that will do all this stuff to feed on TV, go to help a family, and then they'll go in, like there's one incident where these people took an Ouija board and caused more activity. And when they realized what was in the home, they told them that they couldn't help them and that they were on their own and just left this whole entire family to deal with this whole mess. Oh. Yeah. Nice. Well, <laughs> you know, a lot of people laugh at the concept of EVP, but if you go back and look... The origins of EVP were by a scientist. This guy named Raw Deve wrote a book on it back in, I think, the 1950s. So when the EVP thing first came out, it was considered legit by a lot of parapsychologists. And I think a lot of, of amateurs have run away with it and made a joke out of it. But originally it was not, so... Right. You know, yeah. I mean... Um, a lot of what the ghost hunters do that is laughed at are 
bastardized versions of real parapsychology techniques that are being misused and misunderstood by amateurs who don't know what they're doing. Yeah, especially yeah, when it comes to provocation. How many how, how many instances have we heard people going in and yelling and screaming at the um, apparition or entities in that location? And yeah. Constant. If they're not getting activity, they will literally resort to this stuff just to yeah. get a response. And then if you have that handful of people that get scratched or they get pushed or they get some form of attack, then all of a sudden, well, it's there. It's you know, it, it's evil, and it has to be stopped. And they don't know what they did wrong. Well, when it comes to human spirit, speaking from a mediumistic standpoint, okay, you're dealing when you're dealing with the human soul. You're dealing with the human spirit. They may not have their physical body anymore, but their voice is still present. Their mannerisms are still present, and their traits are still present. If you go yeah. into a location and you don't know the way that the spirit died, or if you do and you blurt it out, that could have seriously serious ramifications because one, the spirit may or may not know that they're dead, nor would they want to be reminded of how they died. What do you think about the idea that there exists spirits that have never had a material body? Things like... Demons or angels or whatever you want to call them. I think they're real. I think they're real. Um, As being, and this is another hat that I tend to wear with the society, because we have over the years gotten our share of dark cases. And there are demonic beings out there that have never lived. They can masquerade as human beings, you know, men, women, children, animals but they can't fully take our form because they never live to begin with. And I think it's the right. same thing with, like, the more positive love and light angels from God or the Creator or whoever, you know, you wish to call Him, those particular mm-hmm. angels can take the forms of human beings. We hear this term as being good Samaritan. You know, these are particular angels that may show up at a time or place to help save a person, don't want any recognition, and you can't find them soon after they help you. So I think yeah, that when well, it comes to some people angels, think that mm-hmm. some people think that things like Dogman and some of these other stranger cryptids may be some kind of demonic manifestation apparition of some sort. Yeah, they could be. I think if you keep an open mind. They could be. They yep. could be E.T. origin, for all we know. There are yeah, so many well, different theories out there on, on Dogman, it's hard to kind of just group them all together. Well, I think that's part of the problem, and I think we touched on that on this show with Kevin, is I think there are some entities, if you want to call them that, that are lumped into cryptozoology that don't really belong there. Things that are more likely to have an origin in parapsychology, a spiritual creature of some kind, or possibly something alien or interdimensional. Right. That is not what we would consider a prehistoric survival or an ordinary animal in the accepted sense. Yeah. Well, it's rough trying to lump them into one particular category because, again, Look at how many, and, and all of you know this, 
look how many different species of animals that are being re- that are being discovered and animals that were thought to have been extinct are being rediscovered, you know? Yes. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're finding birds and all kinds of little mammals that they thought were extinct for, you know, years and years now that they're showing on up. The other, on the other side of the coin, though, we're being asked to accept that there's not only... Bigfoot living out in the woods and lake monsters in the lakes right next to the woods that Bigfoot's living in, but there's there's a whole horde of lizard men and Loveland frogs and chupacabras yeah. and Jersey devils all living in these woods simultaneously at the same time, and we can't find any of them. That's what that, the skeptics are, are saying to us. Yeah, that's what makes me lean more toward the metaphysical side on many of these so-called cryptids. All right, well, then then you open uh, open up a whole new can of worms, okay? So there's dimensional doorways opening up at random in different places. Why Why doesn't one of these interdimensional doorways randomly open up in the middle of somebody's house? If this is just happening at random, I don't know. Give me or is somebody controlling it? Is it is it is it only happening in certain select places? Right. Yeah. Or well, is like there only said. is there only specific places on the face of the earth where everything is right, the physical circumstances are right to open up one of these doorways? Right. In other words, are there actually flap areas because of there are areas that these doorways only open up in, if you follow me? Yes. John Keel was a main follower of that, and uh, I'm sure as you know that. And uh, he he proposed there were window areas, you know, pretty much around the world, which I believe also. Um, it could be even parallel, para, uh, parallel dimensions, or what he calls multiverse theories. But uh, and he calls them ultra-dimensionals. Um, some of these entities. So. Uh, well, the physicist Michio Kaku states that there are yeah. probably eleven different universes. And that probably each of these different 11 universes have a different vibration rate for the neutrons and protons. That The matter is different because of, of the vibration rate of the atoms, yeah. I, I guess. Yeah. And that something that came from another universe into ours, the matter might be slightly different. You know? Yeah. The physical constitution of it. So that opens up another question. Let's Let's say biological animals are coming through dimensional doorways or time doorways into our world. Are they still just physical animals while they're here? Or are they made of something else? 
Right. Which well, is a whole like, different, you know, say you've right. got an interdimensional creature that came into our universe and died, and we found it. Would its matter be the same as ours or what, you know? Right. On that same course, um, just like you mentioned Bigfoot, um, if it's interdimensional, it's if it's coming through a lord or a window, um, it's definitely leaving footprints and traces. Yeah. So well, nobody's that, denying that's that. That's physical evidence. That's physical evidence. So. Well, that tends to suggest that it's not just an apparition. It's made out of something. Right. Exactly. Even the parapsychologists think that maybe ghosts are made out of something, whatever you want to call it, ectoplasm was the old concept. Oh, yeah. And that's actually back in the spiritualist days. There was a guy that actually took samples of ectoplasm from a seance and studied it in a laboratory. Yep. And they found out that some of the, quote, ectoplasm used by fake mediums back during the early, late 1800s, early 1900s, was actually made of a a substance called cheesecloth. Yep. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of that back then. So, yeah, so, you know, as far as being physical, there were samples of physical ectoplasm, but a lot of it turned out to be made out of known substances. Yeah. yeah, hoaxes, yeah. Yeah, hoaxes. but not all of it, apparently. No. Uh, let me open up this file I found, and it, it talks about it. Let's see here. But, you know, there are some people that think that things like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster are spiritual entities. <laughs> Tulpas, right. and projections, all kinds of weird theories, you know? Yeah, yep. I mean, I think as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to like Bigfoot and Dogman, I think when I I prefer prefer you term interdimensional because I've always felt that way about these yeah. particular types of beings, and I think that um, when they're here where we are in our reality, they have the means to adapt. That's the way any other known known physical animal would in our environment. Right. But I also think that they have metaphysical properties that not too many people are aware of. And as far as portals, portals can be opened up uh, by people, too. I mean, if you look at people that do rituals, they'll open doorways. That's basically a portal or a vortex. Um, So there are so many different possibilities with both, but that's what I'm thinking when it comes to portals. Because, like, when you had mentioned not hearing about a person having a portal in their home, well, we don't necessarily know that because we haven't heard about that. But if you have people that purposely open doors inside their homes, then, yes, they could have doorways. Right. We have to remember that the people on our side have to be debunkers, too. And, right. you know, a lot oh, of this absolutely. could just be stories. I mean, stories, what if the whole Sasquatch phenomena or, or is just like another boogeyman used to frighten children 
to, to not, you know, to, to not misbehave or to not go out in the forest when they shouldn't, you know, things like that. Yep. Uh, I think some of these, not all of them, I certainly hope not all of them, but I'm certain that a good number of these things that uh, we talk about, we try to cipher and look at as a possible being real things could be just, just simple folklore. And that doesn't, that doesn't diminish the value of it. It's still folklore. It's still an important story, and it still affects people emotionally. And that emotional mm-hmm. effect exists. I think that's the importance of folklore, uh, is that it, it affects us whether or not that being, that thing, has a physical element. It still has a physical effect, a mental effect, on, on a society, on a culture, so much that this thing lives on. And then we, if we take that, and if we look at the idea of tulpas and thought forms as a legitimate possibility, could enough people who are focusing on something uh, create something? Like a thought form, could Bigfoot be one of the world's most powerful thought forms or, tul- or tulpas? Could Loch Ness Creature be one of the world's most powerful thought forms or tulpas? You know, could Jesus, could religious myths be thought forms when people see these things? All this yeah. is another another element that we have to consider, but as well as you know, not calling it not calling a bullcrap, but calling it a story that has grown and has thrived, making it yeah. something that's real in, in in people's hearts, and the fear is real, and the passion is real, and the love of these stories are real, but they might not be totally real and manifest in the way that we would like them to. I yeah. think that we we need to recognize that we have to debunk. And bring, uh, bring, or maybe not debunk, but bring other options to the table besides just trying to prove it's real—a living, breathing, or metaphysical thing—but other elements so that we can be taken more seriously. Uh, well, the truth yeah. is, the truth is that in a lot of cases, people get bored and make stuff up just because oh, they're bored, and this leads to things bored, like boy. there are. There are little ponds all over the United States that have monster stories in them. Well, you know, it's yeah, ridiculous to, to contemplate that something really tangible could exist in some of these little bitty tiny lakes. Unless it's, and an it's probably dun, dun, dun. Well, yeah, if it's, <laughs> if it's a, some supernatural thing, yeah, maybe. But, but uh, I think in a lot of cases it's just somebody got bored and decided to make up a story. And usually... The way you can tell the difference is you can track down these stories, and there's never any specific incident or a name or somebody that you can go talk to that can verify the story. It's just an open story that so-and-so said this happened because somebody else told them, you know. That's usually a red flag right there, you know. And then we have folklore, and we have storytelling, and something that keeps told and retold. Yeah, without a real cool. basis of reality. And I think that, but then, you know, on, on a more uh, open-minded approach, you know, with every, with a lot of folk like Manly Palmer Hall, Rudolf Steiner, Leadbeater, they all talk about nature spirits and how like, you know, in, in lore, you know, every, every tree, every body of water, every stream has nature spirit or spirits that belong there and, and, and thrive there. Yeah. And uh, again, it just comes to how we want to approach it. And then we can we can approach it from like a hundred different directions of possibility, and 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 it's just I just think that we keep going in circles, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But we have to admit that until we can really, like you said earlier, we have the physical manifestation to prove. Same conversation 
for the rest of our lives. Right. And well, I don't know. I don't know what's going on here, but my PDF file opener has decided to stop working on me. <laughs> no, Mercy's so going retrograde. I'm flying without a net here. <laughs> so I'm going to be talking about stuff, and I can't remember people's names. But trust me, I have stuff to back this up. Um, That's what happens when planets are in retrograde. Nothing works. Something, yeah. I don't know. But anyway, um, did any of you guys see uh, George Sukulis has two shows, uh, In Search of Aliens and Ancient Aliens. And I can't remember which one it is, but there was one. He decided to drag the Loch Ness Monster into his crazy stuff. I know what you're talking about. I know it, right, I can't so, remember which one it is either. So, the, the, it was the, the whole alien. theme of the show, yeah, the whole thing of the theme of the show was that <clears throat> somehow quartz deposits were generating energy and opened up a time doorway in which plesiosaurs could come from the Mesozoic era into our time and wind up in Loch Ness and Lake Champlain and then go back out. And yeah. this, was, this was proposed by a physicist named John Brandenburg, and I read up on him, and he's a creationist that has also proposed that there was a nuclear war on Mars. Mm-hmm. Which kind of brings us back to the whole Martian plesiosaur guy through a different doorway. So, you know, I don't know what to think about that. But getting back to this quartz idea, something a little bit more credible that might answer this stuff from outside of biology, but not exactly a paranormal answer, is this guy. I can't remember his name. It's in the PDF, which I can't open. But anyway, this guy proposed that there was the possibility that quartz could generate electromagnetic fields that could trigger hallucinations in the human mind in certain places, and that perhaps these apparitions and monster sightings were caused by this hallucination caused by the electromagnetic generated by quartz. So, in other words, this guy's talking about <clears throat> electromagnetic fields creating hallucinations within the human mind in certain places where there are large deposits of quartz, which might include places like Loch Ness and like Champlain. Well, they have so that this, So, this guy's idea is not supernatural. It's controversial, but it is within the realm of what we know about the material universe. Yeah. So, well, but, they say, that, say the same thing about the, the quartz and uh, other mineral compositions affecting uh, paranormal sites also. Yeah. That it could uh, generate a more, along with water. Water is another great generator, yeah. they say. Yeah, so there's all kinds of, you know, interesting ideas. But anyway, this is I'll mention this because this is not something supernatural. This is something in the human mind being affected externally by electromagnetic energy. 
you know, so we're not talking anything supernatural here or metaphysical, really. We're talking about some kind of unknown phenomena within the physical world as we understand it. Hmm. But now the problem with that explanation is is that hallucinations within the human mind do not appear on film, do not affect <laughs> the external world and leave footprints, and don't appear in photographs, in theory. So, you know, right. that stuff right there, you know. If you want to say, okay, every, every time somebody sees one of these things, it's electromagnetic energy affecting their brain, but any time they find a footprint or take a photograph or shoot a video, it's all fake. Yeah, right. That's the corner you're back in with that argument there. So, you know, uh, getting back to the question of, okay, let's say things like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, all these other cryptids are supernatural, parapsychological, whatever you want to call them. Are they just are they are they just visions, or are they physical? Are they made out of something? If they're not animals, are they made out of some other substance, some spiritual substance, or something we don't understand, like ectoplasm? Hmm. I would like to think. Do that they take the physical of, form? You know. I would think because they take the physical form that they're made of more than just what would be considered by people like. Uh, a topa or like a hallucination or a vision, I think that they're very, they're very physical. But like yeah, I said well, earlier. Mm-hmm. There are some classic ghost photographs that haven't been completely debunked. The, the, oh, the, yeah. You know, the one I point to that I've never been able to find anything <clears throat> to really get rid of is the tulip staircase photograph. Oh, uh-huh. the great lady of Raynham Hall. Yes. Well, that's a good one, too, but I, the one I'm yeah. talking about is where you see this, it looks like somebody wearing a, uh, a robe with a hood on it going up a spiral yep. staircase. Yeah. It was taken in Canada back in 1966. Yeah, it looks like a hand on the banister. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I put it yeah. in the, the slideshow for the yeah. show we're doing here, and I also put in the, the brown lady photograph, too. Yeah, well, here's another so, one that we're never able to debunk. The Madonna of Bachelor's Grove. I don't think yeah. I've ever seen that. Um, oh, yeah. I'll have to find an image of it. But it, there was a team out of Chicago that went to Bachelor's Grove Cemetery. And they used their uh, infrared and night vision cameras, or was it ultraviolet? I'm trying to remember. And they were taking photos of the cemetery. When they, when they went back to look at the photos that they had taken, there was a clear outline of a woman sitting on top of a headstone. Huh. Yeah, it was like a, it was like a stone bench. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. yeah it was yeah, a little Please dig that up and send me a copy so I can check it out. All right, I'm going to go look for yeah. it while we're talking. Um, so... If you propose that these creatures and the sightings associated with them are not animals in the accepted sense and that there's something paraphysical or metaphysical going on, I would think you would be able to document some kind of 
residue of an electromagnetic energy field or something left behind where something like that happened. And there may be indications that this is possible because recently my friend Andy McGrath interviewed Bigfoot researcher Paul Bartholomew on his show. And Paul was talking about there was a UFO landing apparently somewhere in New York State in 1973 and that there was evidence of a medical physical uh, effect left behind at the site where the UFO landed in that for some reason the hot and cold water faucets in the bar were reversed somehow. That the hot water was cold and the cold water was hot. And I've also read in the UFO literature over the years that there have been, you know, radiation effects, electromagnetic effects, even slight ones left behind at places where these UFOs have landed. So if I was going out into the field to investigate what I believe to be some kind of supernatural or metaphysical uh, cryptid encounter, I would be bringing the sorts of things that parapsychology researchers use to, to look for electromagnetic fields and maybe even a Geiger counter to look for radiation <coughs> anomalies. Right. Yeah. So <clears throat> basically what I'm saying is is that to the advocates out there that are proposing these paranormal explanations, at least make an effort, if you're doing field research, to come up with some kind of physical evidence of an electromagnetic effect or radiation effect or something beyond just saying, oh, it's portals, it's a vortex. I mean, that's a statement in a vacuum. Try to come up with some kind of evidence to back up this idea, is what I'm saying. Is that asking too much? No, I don't think it is. You know? Because it's almost impossible to get it. You can't get a Bigfoot to come out out from behind the tree when you want it to. Yeah, I mean, mean, if you just walk around explaining everything away with a portal or a vortex or an indimensional doorway... You're you're removing the burden of evidence from your own work. In other words, if I'm saying that there's some kind of animal in Lake Champlain, the burden of proof is on me to come up with something in the nature of a bone or a body or something to the best of my ability. And, And I've been trying to do that now for 27 years and have not come up with it yet. Right. Which some people say, well, see, that proves there's nothing there. But, you know, no. <laughs> and the people that think there's a physical Bigfoot are coming back with footprints, with dermal ridges, which is in itself is controversial, hair samples, yeah. things like the Patterson film, you know, which in itself is still controversial. Um, but anyway, that's something. It's better than nothing, you know. 
Yeah. Photographs and videos from Lake Champlain and Loch Ness, they're controversial, but nonetheless, they do exist, and you can go back and look at them again and again and again and restudy them. People can can go tear the Patterson film apart a hundred times. It's there. You can go look at it. It's been stabilized. It's been digitized, you know. You can go back and study it again and again and again. You know, if somebody makes all these outrageous claims about, oh, I've seen Bigfoot 25 times and I've habituated them and all this stuff, and every time you ask them, oh, okay, how come you don't have a photograph? How come you don't have this? How come you don't have that? Oh, it disappeared into a portal. You know, at least go to the place where you believe the portal is and try to come back with some kind of electromagnetic evidence or radiation residue evidence. You know, at least try to come back with something other than, oh, it disappeared into a portal. Right, but you, and you, you can know, very well go that to those areas and look for physical stuff, which I would encourage people to do if they have, you know. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. I'm not trying. I'm not right, trying no, to be a not. complete butthole here. I'm just saying, at least try to come back with something, you know. Right, but but I I do want to say something really quick. When it comes to portals, if you can get evidence that there's one in a location where you saw like a Bigfoot or a Dogman, and you can find some way to get that on record, that's awesome. I mean, let's, let's face it, there are some charlatans. There are some charlatans in the cryptozoology field that use this portal crutch to get away with murder. Yeah, so yeah. they're using portals in every area, so I totally understand that. Yeah, and well, I don't think they're cryptozoologists or, or even have the, should have the title cryptozoologist if they're using that term. Because, uh, right. I mean, cryptozoology right. should be strict science. If you're going to talk about portals, let's talk about the more metaphysical area. But let's, you know, I'm, right. I'm kind of with, uh, w- with uh, Scott on this. Like, we need to keep things in certain defined areas. Otherwise, there's a lot of pollution involved. And it's hard to defend. You know, it's hard to defend yeah. cryptozoology when we're trying to study animals and we bring up the term portals. You know, I think Bigfoot yeah. is, a, is a sticky situation because, you know, we have all these different types of stories, different variations all around the world, you know. Uh, and it's, it's just the vocabulary that we use is, is going against us, especially when we keep using the word monster all the damn time. I think that's well, the word that's you know, uh, stabbing us. The reason us. I use it is because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's easy to use. I mean, when it comes to things like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster, my understanding in that context is it's just a tool to to call something that we don't know what it is. It's an animal of some kind, but it's a weird animal. So yeah. it's a monster in that sense. I think most I, people I, get that, you know. But I see what you're well, doing, no, but we live I, in a society where pop culture owns all these things now. And, you know, monster doesn't does no longer means like larger than life. It literally means something dark and evil and grotesque. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And like when I said Loch Ness creature, that's, I think it kind of, I think creature is a good term to use because it, it kind of has its both feet, you know, in both pools of like mm. the kind of the spooky water as well as like the more realistic water at the same time. You know what I mean? There's yeah. This thing, if it, it's a creature. Uh, this creature in Lake Champlain, uh, you're going to get people to kind of listen to you a little bit more 
a little more attentively and more, you know, yeah. pragmatically than say, like, you know, there's a monster mm-hmm. in there. Well, this right. monster. I don't use the word monster in the same context mm-hmm. when I'm talking about Frankenstein as I'm talking about the Loch Ness monster. It has a different meaning, but maybe well, I'm totally close that. to it. You know, I, I get what you're. Right. I know what you mean, but people just yeah. can't. People aren't smart enough to differentiate. That's my point. I think people are stupid. Mm. <laughs> well, especially nowadays, are... we're living in a culture that that has really dumbed people down, and I don't know why. It's really sad, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you got people believing in a flat earth, and then we never went to the moon, and all kinds of crazy stuff, you know? Oh, you know what I love? I love the, like, the gigantic... Uh, like Devil's Tower being a tree stump. Oh, I love that stuff. That's so fun to hear them talk <laughs> about that. Well, there is not, there are petrified not, tree stumps, but not that big. You yeah. know? Right. You know what I would, I would like to say something? this, too? Yeah. I would like to say that when it comes to portals, I agree. I don't think it should be in, in cryptozoology, but I do believe in para-cryptozoology, and that's where I think the term yeah. portal Well, that's what Kevin... That's that's what the legacy that Kevin left us yeah. is this concept yeah. of paracryptozoology, which is a bridge between normal two, cryptozoology yeah. and parapsychology and ufology. It's this oh, area totally. in between where you could put something right. like Mothman or the, the Flatwoods monster. Place, though. Exactly. It's its own yeah. area. Yeah. 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 And I think that portal should be lumped into that area. Not exactly. so much cryptozoology because it just when I look at regular cryptozoology versus paracryptozoology, when you look at portals, it fit, it doesn't fit in normal cryptozoology. No, it doesn't. Normal hmm. cryptozoology is only concerned with the possibility yeah. of flesh and blood normal physical I mean, animals that live in this right. physical yeah, reality category, that we don't know about. Yeah. Right. Right. Now that could include that could include prehistoric survivors of types of animals that lived millions of years ago that based on living in the modern world they're so weird you know, they would be almost considered monsters. Yeah. But they're not. They're just survivors of, of known types of prehistoric animals that we know from the fossil record that lived on this earth in the past. That if they're alive now, they just managed to squeak through somehow by hiding in isolated places where we haven't found them yet. Right. See, that's where I draw the line where, in my case, with people saying that Bigfoot is like Gigantopithecus blackie, to me, uh, it doesn't sound right. Because this creature, Bigfoot, you know, it's been, from all the accounts, all the strange, you know, things happening around it, UFOs being seen with it at the time, light, orbs, um, vanishing, uh, cloaking. I mean, there's a lot of people, of course, there's a lot of nuts out there. Like, we, we have to put it that but not all these people can be lying and being mistaken, you know, how something can disappear in the blink of an eye. Right. Um, right, okay, I'll do uh, Right. But, like, if it was a descendant of Gigantopithecus, uh, 
it wouldn't be able to do this kind of thing. You know, it it would be a giant lumbering animal, you know, still, you know, up to 800 to 1,000 pounds. It can't disappear in the blink of an eye. So well, even, it, if that's you, what, even if you accept the physical Bigfoot, you're still brought up against the problems of how does something this big manage to hide on the edge of our yeah. civilization... Exactly. Where does it get enough food to eat for an animal that big if it's primarily a carnivore? It lives in the same areas with these humongous bears, Kodiak yep. bears and grizzly bears, and surely it has to interact with them, you know? Right. People like to say that they never <laughs> find the bones of dead bears and dead cougars and dead deers in the woods, but they do. It's a rare occurrence, yeah. but they are found. Right. So why don't we find the bones of Sasquatch? Now, the other side of that argument is <clears throat> they know Gigantopithecus got the size of Bigfoot. And the only yep. fossil evidence that we have for it are teeth and a few jaw fragments. Now, why is that? Yep. That may be right. relevant to the why we're not finding the bones of Bigfoot now. I don't know. The point is nobody knows. Right. It's a mystery. You know, we right. don't know. And then physically speaking, if you look at the different the different areas around the states, like the different regions, you know, it, it seems to me whenever you hear books, Bigfoot encounters, they don't all have the same color fur. They tend to have variants and as far as different colors of fur. Like, look at the Yeti. Yeti's considered yep. a Bigfoot, and he's pure white. Yeah. You know? Well... And I think with the different color fur, depending on where they are, that if they wanted to physically cloak themselves where it, when they were in the woods, if it wasn't metaphysical here, I think they could use their fur to blend in with their surroundings. Well, you know, there might be the problem, too, of there might be more than one kind of entity being lumped in together under yeah. the umbrella of Bigfoot. In other yeah, words, yeah, it's yeah. entirely possible that you could have some kind of hairy-looking thing coming out of another dimension in part of the cases, and then in the other part of the cases, you may be dealing with a genuine relic hominoid. Yeah, yeah. Well, in some cases, and there's, if you I mean, it, if you look at the whole spectrum of Bigfoot reports, there are, there are reports of Bigfoots using language and wearing clothes. Yeah. Yeah, you get that with dogmen too. And there are a yeah. lot of people that tend to get dogmen encounters mixed up with Bigfoot encounters and vice versa. Yeah. And then yeah. you have to look at the more metaphysical things. Look at skinwalkers and Wendigo. Those things are all over the place. Yeah, yeah. and the, the dogman reports have been broken down into two different categories too. Yeah. So, yep. I, yep. you know, I don't know what to do with that. I refuse to believe in literal werewolves. Right. And there's nothing in the fossil record except a gigantic uh, baboon, prehistoric baboon, that could possibly account for dog man. Right. And right. for all we know, so, all we know, all we know, you know for all we know, uh, dog man could be demonic. Well, that's what I was, I was talking about earlier. It's possible. Um, yeah. 
Uh, what was I? I was going to say something. I'm trying to remember. Um, the origins of Dogman are very murky. Um, some people say that it was inspired by a, a radio DJ in Michigan made up a song about a yeah. mythical creature called Dogman back in the 80s, and that somehow that people started taking it literally. And that might yeah. be the origin of the story in Michigan. I don't know. But, well, you know, Dogman. a lot of people point to the so-called Gable film. The Gable film's been exposed as a hoax. Oh, yeah. Right out of the gate. Yeah. You know, there's no question. Yeah. It's a hoax. You know, they interviewed the yeah. guy that made yeah. it. He showed, you know, them putting the film together and everything, doing the special yeah. effects. So, so the Gable film, you can take that off the table. There's yeah. a bunch yeah. of Dogman photographs out there, but most of the ones that I've seen look really questionable. Yeah, <laughs> so so your 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 case for Dogman rests primarily on eyewitness accounts. So you know, and I was going to say Dogman is more more of a recent cryptid, if you could put it that yeah, way. Yeah, where was Dogman in the seventies? You know, but as one of the most credible sightings of a dog man, and they did a show on this one, I believe it was Paranormal Witness, the yep. East of Bray Road, down here in East southern Wisconsin. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There yep. were several kids that actually parked their vehicle on the side of the road. They saw something, they wanted to check it out, and they got down to the water. They noticed there was like a pack of them because if you look at dogmen and you hear stories about encounters, they're not by themselves and they use pack mentality. So right. these horses were like terrified and scared out of their wits and like left. They went and had polygraph tests done. Yep. They passed lying colors. Yeah. Well, the, the problem with dogs, the polygraph thing is, is that a polygraph passing a polygraph test only tells you that you believe that what you're telling is the truth in right, your own mind. Right. right, but at the same time, all of these kids were together. They all saw yeah. the same thing, and they were to back up. They were able to back up each other's claims. Well, that's yeah. true. That's one of the strengths of eyewitness testimony. Is when you have multiple witnesses that generally corroborate each other. Now this right. happens. This has happened a few times in Bigfoot, and it's happened a lot of times in the Lake Monster stuff. There was a, a, a lake cruise on the Spirit of Ethan Allen on Lake Champlain in 1984 where 80 people saw Champ all at one time. So it's yep. kind of hard to dismiss something like that, you know? Yeah, right. it's massive. I'm not saying that, that eyewitness testimony is useless. It's not. If you have right. a whole bunch of different people over a long time span that keep reporting the same sort of thing, that means something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now it's like the, the downside of eyewitness the downside of eyewitness testimony evidence is that they've done psychology research that shows that the human mind in memory does not work like a video recorder. In other words, the longer time goes by, the more your memories can mutate, and your memories 
are also vulnerable to suggestions by other people. Yeah. In other words, if if you see something you couldn't identify, and then I come along and I say, oh, you saw the Lake Champlain monster, my suggestion is going to make your idea in your head mutate into looking more like a monster mm-hmm. than maybe it initially did from your initial impressions. Right. right. Yeah. So, you know, as many overturned murder convictions and things like that that have happened over the years shows the, the uh, you know, problems with eyewitness testimony and how eyewitnesses can become confused. And mm-hmm. they can see two people that look very much alike and be mistaken. Right, right. And, then, and, that can and it also it shows, too, that people can see a glimpse of a bear walking on its hind legs for 10 seconds, walking through the woods and think they saw Bigfoot, or see a, yeah. a dark wave or a floating yeah. log and think they've seen the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah. Right. It's but like a good again, example. When you, have, when you have a sighting where somebody says, okay, I watched this thing for 10 minutes and it held its head up out of the water, five feet out of the water and its head looked around, I could see the eyes and stuff. That's a different, that's a different story right there. That's either somebody right. that's just flat out lying or telling you a significant experience that they witnessed. Yep. So, yeah, you know. Yeah, totally. Totally, and for me, yeah. that I brought that particular case up because it was just a, a case that these, these that these youngsters had solid eyewitness accounts because they all experienced the same thing. Yeah. Well, now um, one thing I remember that Kevin was talking about was he was talking about the old historical accounts of dog-headed men and things like. Uh, yeah. Anubis from, Greek, from Egyptian mythology. Yeah. Yep. You know, so you do have those, but the thing is, the dog-headed men from old uh, Indian mythology, they seem to be describing creatures that were like men, intelligent, but with the heads of dogs, where you're talking about, with dog man, you're talking about some kind of wolf-like monster animal that doesn't seem yeah. to have language or something intelligent like that, you know? Right. right. Well, he, one of the things he was referring to was the Cenocephali. And they yeah. were a race of dog-headed warriors around biblical times, I want to say. They could be found in uh, northern Africa. Um, yeah. from that's the Egyptian and, Right, that's Egyptian. Yes, yes. But there's also ties to St. Christopher. Because there's, there's, right, but yeah. I'm, I'm getting to that too, but there are ties to St. Christopher because he was to believe he was believed to have the the body of a human and the head of a dog. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. look at Anubis exactly. What is Anubis? Yeah. Anubis is an upright canid, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But what I'm saying is, is that the creature that's described in the modern Dogman reports sounds more like an animal an upright, bipedal animal with a wolf's yeah. head, yeah. which is right. a different yeah. concept from from some kind of intelligent humanoid creature with the head of a dog. I'm not dismissing yeah. it. I'm just saying there are more yeah. differences between 
those concepts and the modern dogman sightings. Yes, there are there are yep. actually listed out there, and I don't have it on me at the moment. Six yeah. different types of variants of dogmen. Yeah. Mhm. Okay. Well, you got you got six different races of humanoids with dog heads running around the woods, and we can't find any of them. <laughs> Where are they? Again, that's why I like to go back to the whole interdimensional thing. Well, okay, I mean, yeah. I don't think that these, uh, again, because I don't feel that all these themes that we're talking about are slowly physical. I think that they do have para yeah. well, or I'm metaphysical just, qualities to them. And I think I'm if just you playing were, devil's advocate here, you know? I know you are. But yeah, I think yeah. if you yeah, play portals into it, then you're talking, that's, an older, that's a whole different, ra- uh, another rabbit hole with portals because yep. look at, paranormal. Human spirits can come through portals and vortexes, whether they're good or bad. Inhuman stuff could come through portals and vortexes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and these to me, it supernatural creatures, do you to think me, they're made out of the same material that ghosts are? In other words, are the same, made out of the same stuff? Right. Yeah, I think they're all made out of something, for sure. Yeah. Um, I think with Portal 2 is when you have these beings that come across these openings will use these to get from point A to point B or to point C, and we're kind of just in between. Yeah, well, it's, you know, the the only, the closest thing I have to come back to for a frame of reference for a material concept of what these things could be made out of is ectoplasm, whatever that is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a friend, uh, and Kevin and I knew, we had him on his show. He was huge Bigfoot, Bigfoot hunter. Totally, you know, wanted to catch one in the humane way, not by killing one. And he um, was told by a shaman that he needed to stay away from these beings because they were basically just fallen angels. And well, no, yeah. that, comes, uh, that comes to the Nephilim idea. Right, that, that Sasquatch comes to the survival yeah. of the Nephilim. Right. right, that comes to the Nephilim. And he had said that he had a, an encounter that scared him so bad that he looked at basically Bigfoot as being demonic or what we were just talking about with these Nephilim. Well, you know, there are stories that some people think are valid and some people think are bullshit that... There have been these giant mummies found all over the United States with red hair and double sets of teeth and six fingers, which they think are the remains of dead Nephilim. So, yeah. I think it's yeah, possible. Well, I, I certainly so. believe in, you know, in giants. I mean, oh, I'm, I'm yeah. sure that the, the evidence of giants has been uh, hidden from us. Well, there's some yeah. people that believe these stories that the Smithsonian covered it up, and there's other people that say it's all bullshit. Well, so I know, don't know. It's, it's a double-edged sword, because if you look at, okay, yeah. people that find bones, and there have been reports of this, where people will, will send the bones in for testing, and they'll call back after a certain amount of time because they don't hear anything, and they'll literally have they people from the Smithsonian or these other places telling them that, they either said they looked that they misplaced it 
or they won't get yep. called back at all. So there is yep, an in sending stuff, and we don't see or hear about it anymore because they're not going to want you to know what the findings are about. So they're going to yep. they're going to keep it from you, even if it means keeping the physical evidence that you took the time to send it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's funny because the same thing happens a lot of times with hair sam- Bigfoot hair samples, Jen. They lose it yeah. or, you know, yeah. it never got yeah. to them. Or even UFO, um, pieces of UFO, purported UFOs, they yeah. disappear too. Well, there's yeah. all the controversy about Roswell and uh, the Kecksburg yeah. thing too. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. ties in with the Chestnut Ridge. You want to talk about that some, Steve? Sure. Um, I can briefly go over that. Um, well, Chestnut Ridge, of course, is in Pennsylvania. And um, this, it's always had, uh, it's been a place of strange happenings and seeing UFOs and strange uh, phenomena and creatures. But especially in the 60s, and it seemed to reach a crescendo around early 1970s, um, there was a lot of UFO sightings there with... uh, Bigfoot creatures associated with them, and um, one one of the main uh, accounts was uh, a guy and uh, a couple of his sons or friends. Uh, they were out after seeing a bright orange light come down in a field, and uh, they went out to investigate. And he was carrying a gun, of course, <laughs> but uh, they saw. Uh, this large, hairy, humanoid creature coming down by a fence, coming toward them, approaching them slowly. And uh, they, uh, he fired, apparently fired his gun above its head a couple times with, you know, no reaction. And then he admittedly fired into it and still no reaction whatsoever. And when he did shoot at it, and it, thought you obviously hit it uh the ufo light that was seen behind it the bright orange light immediately went out and the creatures turned and just walked slowly away so this is a strange account and uh it's uh obviously has something to do with a ufo uh, in my eyes and um Having a brain fart? Yeah, I am, actually. Well, I have them occasionally. It's okay. It's a free country. (laughs) I refer to mine as fibro fog. (laughs) (laughs) But but this went on for, like I said, from early 60s to the early 70s. Well, I know the famous... Bigfoot UFO thing happened in 1973. Yep. And I believe there were some hair samples associated with that case, too. If I remember right. Oh, one thing I was going to mention, um, there was corroboration from after that account that I just mentioned, uh, after the creatures disappeared and the UFO blinked out, it didn't take off or anything, it just blinked out, it was gone. And mm-hmm. they had the police show up, and they cooperated that 
there was a glowing area where the UFO was, and it lasted for a few hours afterwards. So we have, you know, police officers stating that they saw this evidence, which I would consider evidence, a glowing, you know, on the ground from where mm-hmm. the craft was seen. So... Well, in the 21st century, if this happens again, we need better documentation of that kind of evidence. Oh, for sure. In some kind of physical form. Now, is Danny B. Stewart still among the living? Right here. All right. (laughs) Well, now, let's, let's, let's get some input from you. Well... I just can't say much more than I already have. <laughs> I ah, just come okay. down to, uh, you know, the storytelling and following the folklore and, you know, trying to take it for what we have and not, you know, not try right. to be belligerent in the conversation. Yeah, exactly. To, that's, you know, that's, right, that's right. one problem that moving forward with this stuff, a meaningful discussion even including skeptics, we need to we need to have the skeptics involved too, and not get pissed off at their points. Oh you yeah, know, like you can, uh, you can, Radford. Yeah, you know you can um, you can discuss this stuff and make your points and not get personal with it. In other words, just because somebody vehemently disagrees with you on something, it's no reason to let it descend into a personal attack. Right. Just, you know, just look at them and say, okay, I disagree with you and be respectful and move on from there, you know? Right. Uh, On a personal note, like for me, like I am a folklorist and I collect folklore, I collect stories. And I find all the stories fascinating from, you know, dogmen to Sasquatch to strange lake creatures to fairy folk, you know, goblins and things on the bed and boogeymen. And, what I like to do is try and find, you know, kernels uh, and, and uh, hills and mountains of evidence to back up something, to back yeah. up something yeah. that might validate these stories. And, you know, and sometimes all we have to validate these stories is history yeah. and, and re- repeated yeah. story to like the like the, the Slender Man, which, you know, today right. has turned into a pop culture nonsense. And it, it yeah. people like they it falls into internet folklore, which you know I absolutely despise internet folklore. I loathe it. Yeah, it's because like there's so much more interesting legitimate folklore out there that's untouched, and yet we have people focusing on this internet folklore. But what my point is like it falls in the category of internet folklore. But like the Slender Man, the Tall Man, the Hat Man, many different names seen all over the world for centuries. And yet yeah. we're ignoring well, the history of these things. Now, what could these things be? Could they be just blatant folklore, just stories to scare people? Well, they uh, take out a life of their own. Look at the the girl who stabbed the other girl, you know? Yeah. And, and people, Some people are extremely vulnerable to this yeah. kind of stuff. It's are so gullible, you know, it's almost dangerous to yeah, believe that it. that happened by me. Well, I have a I have a tall man uh, on my ghost tour in Provo, Utah, and it's in an alleyway. And what's really interesting is over the last few years, 
multiple uh, people on my tour say they have actually seen it while behind me, while I've been talking. Well, now, wasn't that just full of, full of crap? Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, yeah. it, it, these stories live on through that type of energy. Oh, absolutely. Now, yep. And I'm not, I'm not devaluing their, their sighting, their story, because maybe they actually saw something. Maybe there really is something back in this alleyway, that, because, you know, the stories well, are still thriving. It's subjective. In their own mind, they did see something. It's real yeah. to them. Exactly. So, or, that's so, part of the problem. Or it could be like, or it could be like and, a park region type thing. Yeah, well, that's like, that's like, you know, Kevin and I, Look at look at the Slender Man as a Topa. We were always looked at, at that particular being as Topa because he started out as a creepy pasta. And yep. there were these girls like you guys were just talking about a few minutes ago, and it happened in Southern Wisconsin that believed in this thing so much that they took one of their people that they that they pretended to be friends with, uh, friends with, and basically lured out her out into the woods. And attempted to kill her so they could go and live with Slender Man and be a part of his gang. Yeah, there's a documentary about it. It's called Beware the Slender Man. Yeah. But we have to remember these things existed before the creepypasta took ownership. Yeah. So, yeah. In the folklore, in the vernacular, yeah. these things existed. But the, but the problem we have, and each and every one of us, in our own, in our own approaches, we have to deal continuously we're fighting. I think our our biggest enemy, our greatest enemy, is pop culture, because right. of the way that they vilify, they demonize, they turn them into jokes. All these different variations of what we study, our livelihood, our passions, which I think each and every one of us consider them to be uh, part of culture, part of society, and part of what it means to experience humanity. Because these stories. We all grew up with stories like this, and they affect us all yeah. in many different ways. Sometimes Absolutely. through fear, sometimes yeah. through passion. And, and enough of us, you know, these stories that we learn in our youth, they push us to, to delve into these, to sell, to really sell our soul to this type of study, where it, to us, it's more than just, you know, creepypasta uh, and fun and fancy. We literally delve, we, we become investigators and detectives trying to find what little bits of truth exist with each and every one of these. Mm-hmm. And as I said before, we have kernels of truth and we have mountains of truth. And many times all we're going to find are kernels. Mm-hmm. And some of us, that's all we need. But we well, there's actually, the fact- in, the skeptic, in the skeptic movement right now, there is a school of thought called post cryptid cryptozoology and the idea behind that is that some people in the skeptic community think the whole thing is nothing but a sociological phenomenon with no abject reality behind it. I'm not saying I endorse that, I'm just talking, commenting on it. Well they'll throw out words uh, terms like the, as it called, pareidolia is that the term where people see people see an object and they read meaning into it when it's nothing but but just an inanimate object like a tree stone in the woods like as a bigfoot standing there yeah exactly or as a child you know in our youth we're lying in our room and the coat that's thrown over the side of the bed turns into some type of creature exactly yeah in in the dark yep and what we call the boogeyman sometimes derives from that right there what did i tell you about 
Did I tell you the story about the headless woman standing in my driveway? No. Back in the summer. Yeah. I look no. out, I hear a noise in the middle of the night, and I look out the window, and there's a headless woman standing in the driveway. And I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, I took pictures of it, too. So I finally get up the balls to put some pants on and walk outside to confront the headless woman. And I get out there, and it's a fold-up, pop-up tent that my neighbor had left in the driveway. But from a distance in the dark, it looked exactly like a woman wearing a shawl, wearing white pants and a pair of shoes with no head. You couldn't tell what it was until you get right up on it. But I swear to God, if it fooled me, you could put this thing out in the middle of the woods and scare the shit out of somebody. Oh, of course. Yeah. But then we have yeah. another element where these things that we see, they start to move. And then we don't know what the hell we're dealing with because we still can't identify what these things are, whether or not it's a misidentified type of creature. You know, like, who knows? I, I, I am very open-minded about this, but I also try to look at it, you know, pragmatically, as, and I think as we all should, so that we don't get cornered with the rest of the individuals who are just trying to, you know, make fun, mock, or, you know, to, to get attention by creating this nonsense and pop culture element that ultimately mm, yeah. is our worst enemy. Well, we've yeah. got five minutes to wrap things up. So everybody, okay. I'll give everybody two minutes. Make about okay. six minutes. So go ahead, Jennifer. <laughs> you got two minutes. Okay. Well, you can find me on Facebook under Jennifer Malik or Jennifer Malik Psychic Medium. Um, you can also find our groups, Lake Monstrosities, Ultimate Conspiracies, and for old and awesome and wonderful show archives, you can go to Paraversal Universe Radio and Paraversal Universe Radio Archives page. Okay, little Stevie Wonder. <laughs> yeah, you can find me on Facebook under Steve Patrick Carrington and my Facebook group, Anomalous Universe. And, of course, I'm also uh, moderating in Scott's group, Zombie Plesiosaurus Society, and Jennifer's group, uh, Lake Monstrosities. All right, Danny. many other groups. Hi, yeah, well, um, you can find me on Facebook also and under Danny B. Stewart, and I own and operate the original Provo, Utah Ghost Tour, which... Uh, has its own site on Facebook. I give uh, ghost tours and fairy walks and uh, lectures about, uh, you know, phenomena that, you know, most people don't take too seriously. But I, I approach with a, a different type of, uh, you know, voice, I think. So you can reach me on there if you ever want a tour or a talk or whatever. All right. Well, this has been a wonderful discussion. And thank you guys for all coming on. And uh, I'm sure hey, you would be proud of us. Yeah, thank uh, you Miss, for having us on. And yeah, I can yeah. say that Kevin is more than more more than proud, and so is Jeff, and they're both looking yeah, down on us. Miss both those guys, and um, I'm glad we were able to kind of wrap this up, you know, and finish it up. And um, I thought we yeah. got in a lot of good points, you know. This was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. All right. Well. Hey. Well, I guess, as Beaver T. Justice once once said, it's time to pee on the fire and call in the dogs. Cool. All right. Keep on yep. rock and rolling. 
All Bye-bye. right. Bye. You guys take care. Thanks for coming on. Right. Bye. Thanks a lot. Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis.